It's episode 414, and I'm joined by Dr. Glenn Livingston. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to episode number 414. Today, I want to talk about breaking the cycle of overeating, and to do that, I am joined by none other than Dr. Glenn Livingston. So, Glenn is a veteran psychologist, and he was disillusioned for a long time about what traditional psychology had to offer those who were overweight and those who were food-obsessed. So he spent several decades digging into the research and trying to understand the nature of binging and overeating. And he talks to us about strategies, tips, and techniques to break either of those dilemmas which you might find yourself in. And he talks a little bit about his personal journey out of obesity and that kind of food prison that he found himself in it's a fascinating chat if you are somebody who is fighting the battle of the bulge let us just put it gently uh roadman the podcast is brought to you by patreon and again it's not sponsored by patreon but it is sponsored by you the listeners so if you have two seconds, please consider heading on over to patreon.com forward slash Anthony underscore Walsh. It'll take about 30 seconds to complete the whole process. And over there, you can buy me the price of a pint of beer. And that's how we support the podcast. We have cranked the podcast up since the new year. Matt Stevens yesterday, Yaroslav Popovich the day before, and Glenn Livingston today. It's been an absolutely roller coaster 2022 so far, and I'm delighted to keep cranking things up with you as we head into quarter two. But to do that, I do need your support. We are this little cool community which is building. We're building and we're building and we're building and we're taking on some of the bohemians in the podcast and industry and we're already getting a nice bit of penetration and that is thanks to you guys. Another way you can support the podcast is just telling friends and family about it or give us a review over on Apple's Rate It and Review It. It makes such a big difference over there. Okay, Roadman, I've pushed this one off far enough. Let me jump in to the chat with Dr. Glenn Livingston. I'm so happy to be here. Please call me Glenn. <laughs> Doctor sounds like I'm having a medical emergency. <laughs> doctor sounds like my dad is what it sounds like. Um, but I, I guess I worked a lot of years to get called a doctor. So if you want to call me Dr. Glenn, that's okay. There's I'm, I've so many friends who have uh, PhDs and a lot of them have, you know, PhDs in philosophy, history, politics, whatever the subject, non-medical PhDs, non-MDs. But I'm always reminded of that episode of Friends. I'm not sure if you remember it, where Ross is in the hospital and he introduces himself as Dr. Ross Geller and Rachel hits him and she's like, Ross, that actually means something around here. Don't just throw yeah, that tag I, around. I, actually, I remember that exact scene, actually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, Glenn, when did you become disillusioned with the current paradigm in the food industry with regards to obesity? Well, I, I had a serious eating problem myself. I was a binge eater. Um, arguably, I also had exercise bulimia. So I, I would work out in order to eat more. When I was 17 or 18, I figured out if I worked out several hours a day. I'm 6'4", I'm modestly muscular. And so if I worked out a few hours a day, I could eat anything I wanted to. And I made myself into a big 
eating, sleeping, pooping machines, basically what, what I did. Um, and, and as I got older and I was, you know, married and commuting several hours each way to see patients and go to graduate school, I, helping my ex-wife with the business, I, I felt like I just, um, I didn't have the time to work out anymore. And my metabolism was slowing, but the, the food had a real hold on me. And because my ex-wife didn't, um, we couldn't have kids because she traveled for business all the time. I wound up, you know, working at home, having a lot of time in my hands. And in addition to my clinical practice after I graduated, uh, which was in child and family, it wasn't in eating disorders. I, I also started a consulting business, um, which was kind of an offshoot of what she was doing, where I, I worked for, you know, companies like Lipton or Novartis or you know, a whole bunch of other ones that, uh, you know, Planters Lifesavers, uh, that, that um, you know, were, at the time, I really thought I was going to develop an influence inside of those companies and I would get them to do better things. But really what they were doing was they were engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salt and, 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 it was all designed to hit the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. So they're kind of hijacking your survival drive so that you would think the good stuff was there. When I really got disillusioned, I think, is when I saw how the advertising industries that they would hire um, were really fooling us. They're really fooling the consumer. Um, for example, I remember this food bar manufacturer who shall remain nameless. God, I don't um, like lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But they, you, they're very well known. You, you would know them if I mentioned them. And the VP of marketing became a good friend of mine. He actually was a friend of mine before I worked for them. And he pulled me aside as he was leaving the company and he said, you know, I kind of got to hang my head in shame because our most profitable insight was taking the vitamins out of the bar. The vitamins were making the bar taste worse and they were expensive. So what we did instead is we engineered, we put the money into the packaging and we engineered this, these bright, um, diverse, shiny, multicolored packages, which in nature, a diversity of bright, shiny colors would represent a diversity of micronutrients that are, that are available. That's why they tell you to eat the rainbow. Yeah. Have a, you know, have a salad with deep green lettuce and yellow carrots and red tomatoes and blueberries and um, because there's a diversity of micronutrients available when you do that. But here they took the micronutrients out and they were fooling us. And that was very profitable for them. And that's just an isolated example. That kind of thing goes on all across the industry. I suppose where I have the problem with it is I think there's some foods out there that, you know, we don't need our Mars bars to be healthy. You know, I have no problem with Mars bars not containing vitamins. But f for me, when marketing becomes almost duplicitous is when I see a drink we have over uh, this side of the pond. I'm not sure your prevalence of it. I think you guys have Gatorade. That's your similar one over here. But we use LucasAid Sport. And yeah. I've LucasAid Sport, their marketing is heavily centered around athletes drinking the drink. But I have friends who are consuming liters of Lucozade Spore thinking it's a health drink when it's yeah. laced with sugar. Yeah. There's just such a lack yeah. of knowledge around it. And the, the marketing industry within nutrition 
plays to the, you know, I'm not sure what percentage of the market are quite ignorant around macros, but they're really a, you know, a, a sitting duck for those marketers. The, the, the consumer still, it's getting better, you know, with the organic movement and the whole foods movement and everything like that. But the consumer still is largely um, on an actuarial basis, a sitting duck for what the marketers want to do. And it's, it's one thing to decide you're going to have a whole bunch of sugar and know that it's not good for you, but be, you know, indulging in your food freedom. And we, we fought wars for freedom in this country. So I would fight for your right to do that if you want to have a bunch of Mars bars. It's another to be fooled into thinking that it's healthy for you. Yeah. Um, and what, what happens in advertising and with industry is that they're masters of giving you plausible deniability. Um, so the consumer doesn't really want to eat healthy. I mean, some of us do. But mostly what they're looking for is plausible deniability. How can I have my sugar and believe that it's healthy for me? How can I have potato chips made with avocado oil or, you know, now enriched with vitamin E? Well, it's still a potato chip. It's still, you know, it's got heated oil and just about every study ever done on heated oil suggests that it's carcinogenic and it's still got acrylamides and all these horrible things for you, but it's infused with vitamin E. And some people think that, we're seeing the emergence of this uh, with the marketing of protein, protein Mars bars, protein Snickers. Uh, we have bars on the market here like Fulfill bars, which I see a lot of people going for instead of a regular chocolate bar because they're marketed as protein bars. If you flip them over and look at the macros on the back, there's a lot more carbohydrates in there than there is protein. And it's, yeah. it, it's essentially just a block of sugar. People will do anything to get a block of sugar under the guise of um, doing something healthy for themselves. And you, you know what's a super interesting area at the moment? I'm not sure if you've looked at it. So right now I'm wearing a Aura wearable ring. So the wearable technology, it's tracking your metrics all day long. So it's, tra it's tracking heart rate variability. It's tracking heart rate. It's tracking step count. And we're getting served up a bunch of data, you know, the Apple Watch is the most prevalent wearable, but there's other companies making a real bang like Fitbit, Whoop, Aura. So we have a big chunk of data. And my worry around some of the reports I've seen on where this data is going, sure, some avenues of it are very productive when we go into better ways to optimize our sleep and different altered prescriptions for training. Like, say, if my median amount of steps I take in a day is 10,000, now all of a sudden I have a deviation of plus 80% okay, maybe I'm not as fit to do that session that evening and I should alter that prescription. But where it gets really duplicitous is back to the point you just made about marketing because they know the key data points as when we're most vulnerable to marketing. You know, it's not a, it's not a random placement that chocolate bars are placed at the cash register in supermarkets. We're most vulnerable to impulse buys after making a lot of decisions through the, the journey of shopping. But equally, by looking at this data on our wearables in real time, they can serve us up Instagram ads, Facebook ads, when we're most susceptible to making bad choices. Oh, interesting. It's, so when they, when they know we've just done a 20-mile cycle. And, exactly. Or had a bad night's sleep. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that was going on. But of course that's going on. But private privacy is dead. Yeah, now, I don't know the scale that that's going on or which companies are doing it, but the beginning tentacles of it are starting to happen.
yeah. Well, you know, what you really need is a is a solid defense against these things. And thankfully, it's not as difficult as you think. You just have to, our culture suggests that you should use, um, uh, you know, guidelines instead of rules. You know, just eat well 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time. But the problem with that is you don't know when the 90% is, you don't know when the 10% is. So you're constantly making decisions and decisions wear down your willpower, especially at the moment of temptation when you're most vulnerable. And so if you can figure out, if you follow the same example, suppose you only want to have, you know, two ounces of dark chocolate on weekends and otherwise you're not going to have chocolate. Well, then your chocolate decisions have been made and it doesn't matter as much that they can show you an ad on Instagram when you've had a bad night's sleep or after you've done a 20 mile cycle um, because you pre-made all those decisions using your intellect. And that's that's really the kind of defense that I find works for people where they, they think through their emotionally vulnerable, physically vulnerable spots that trigger behaviors and foods that are a struggle for them. And they make intellectual decisions and guidelines, uh, and, I'm sorry, and rules about what they want to execute there and then they just um they assume that any thought in their head that suggests they should do otherwise whether it's put there by a marketer or arises on its own is trouble um and they they seek to ignore those thoughts so just unpack that one for me a little is it a, a set of rigid rules like say if we take uh, i have a sweet tooth so for me i i'm trying to get away from the idea of labeling foods good and bad because i find that when i attach a morality to my food choices it puts me into a negative headspace straight away like having a chocolate bar isn't a bad food there's a bad time to have a chocolate bar and the bad time to have a chocolate bar is if i'm not emotionally present with that decision but if i you know exercise total cognitive awareness that i am having a chocolate bar because i want to relax with my girlfriend and watch a netflix and it's a you know it's a valentine's day it's a birthday it's a special occasion that i deem merits that i shouldn't have a negative association with that food so i'm working really hard to break that tag between negative and positive so how does that fit in with this kind of hard rule philosophy yeah so that that works for a lot of people that works for a lot of people to be more mindful and present when you make chocolate decisions or, you know, eating something that could otherwise be judged as, um, I, I don't really like the word about immoral because overeating isn't a crime. We don't, we don't have any prisons for people that have too many bagels and <laughs> you're, you're not going to wake, wake up sure. to some guy. That, <laughs> right? You're not going to wake up to some guy married to some guy named Bobo because you, um, you ate an extra donut last night, right? It's, um, um, overeating is just something that most people do that isn't necessarily good for them. Um, and there are all these delicious foods. And of course, you can have them if you want to. Some people get out of hand with them and they do better to eliminate them completely. I find that for any particular food, that's about one third of the people that report trouble with it. And about two thirds of the people that report trouble with it do better to just set up boundaries. So, you know, they'll say, um, look, I'm, I'm, I'm only going to eat bread when I'm out to dinner with my wife on the weekends. Otherwise, I'm not going to have bread, right? So they're not moralizing about whether bread is a good thing or a bad thing. What they're doing is eliminating decision-making and they're putting boundaries around it. it it's kind of like if you're, 
if you're aiming at a bullseye, if you're an Olympic archer aiming at the bullseye, you need to know where the bullseye starts and ends. You have to have really clear boundaries around the bullseye. Otherwise, you don't really know what to aim for. And more importantly, if you miss it, you don't know in what direction and by how much. And so you can't really take that feedback to adjust your aim. So yeah, it's interesting. I had recently, uh, so depending on where people are listening to this podcast, or even depending on where you are tonight, Glenn, uh, psychedelics and psilocybin may or may not be legal. So anyone listening, take it with a pinch of salt. But we were talking broadly around, he works as a psychedelic integration coach, teaching athletes how to get extra performance gains by using psilocybin as a performance aid. But we were talking broadly around substance addiction. And I was reflecting on it afterwards because your rule there, say I'm only going to eat bread when I'm out for dinner. When we have rules like this and we set up rituals, we rarely get into difficulty. I think of alcohol, which is a big problem here in Ireland, but we have rituals around alcohol, but it's only when we deviate from those rituals that alcohol becomes a problem. So like my rituals around alcohol are, you know, I don't drink alone. I don't drink in the daytime. Uh, I would only drink when I'm out with my girlfriend or friends. I only have a maximum of two glasses of wine. But it's when we deviate from those and we drink alone, we drink during the day, we drink on weekdays, that's when it becomes a problem. Yeah. Uh, addiction is really the um, relegation of important uh, substance decisions to impulse and emotion rather rather than something that you've kind of thought through with your head and decided what kind of person you want to be with yeah. alcohol, what kind of person you want to be with with chocolate. That's good. I like and, that. Yeah. And, and, and really, the articulation of rules. A lot of people object to that. There's a whole movement that suggests that we shouldn't have any rules about food. We should eat whatever we want to in moderation. And um, you know what? I think that you can articulate rules that support that and you – I find people wind up doing better than if they just try to have 100% food freedom like that. But if you think about it, um, in the course of developing our character, we, we all have a character. Character is nothing more than what you habitually do in the face of temptation. Like what, what do you do with your impulses? How do you How do you direct them in the face of temptation? When you walk into a diner and there's a $10 bill, on the table because the last party left the tip and the waitress doesn't see it yet. And she says, I'll be right back. I'm just going to get your menu. <laughs> Virtually nobody takes that, right? Because they've got this rule in their head that I don't steal. I am not a thief. That's not the kind of person I am around other people's money. Um, what, what I'm saying is that people seem to do better when they consciously articulate the kind of person they want to be around the foods that struggle with them. I'm someone who only eats chocolate on the weekends, just like I'm someone who doesn't take other people's money and I don't kick old ladies in the tush on the street. And if I see an attractive woman, I don't go run up and kiss them right away. Uh, I actually kind of run the other way because I'm shy <laughs> and also because I have a girlfriend now. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but um, you know, it, it's just the kind of person that I am. So and would I've you say that's someone's self-image? Would, would I be right in saying that? It's like how I'm seeing, because I hear you saying like, I'm the type of person who, and when I think about athletes, you know, this is something I'd work on with people. Like, what does an athlete do? Well, athletes have a certain set of habits. We lay our kit out the night before. We, you know, we plan our training out the day before we execute on that training. We are mindfully going through our training. We're not going out to exercise. We're going out to hit certain amount of time in certain prescribed training zones. 
But yes. when I think about why I've exercised restraint around food in the past, it's because of my self-images as an athlete. And I see myself as attributing certain behaviors around food because I'm an athlete. But yes. is the opposite of that true? If somebody sees themselves as an obese person, it gives them like a tacit consent to overeat? Yes. Yes. And you'll find that there's this negative voice inside of you. And when you make, when you draw a very particular line, this voice, uh, you can call it your food monster if you want to. I, I call it something else inside me, which I wish I never called it because I was not going to be famous about this. <laughs> it was, it was just a, I, I called it my inner pig and it was a very private thing. And I kind of wish I called it something different, but I, I didn't. Um, so that's what it says in the book. But your, your inner food monster will criticize you to no end when you make a mistake, right? So if you if you binge out on a whole bunch of donuts or bagels or pizza and you gain a pound, your food monster will say, you're just pathetic, you're too weak, you're not the kind of person who can do this. And it will, it will attack your character. And it turns out that those attacks are actually reptilian brain motivated. They're, they're designed to get you to feel too weak to resist the next binge. And what, once you recognize that and you cultivate um, a character of success, you, you look for evidence of success rather than evidence of failure. And you say, gosh, I had five cupcakes instead of 15. How did I do that? Yeah. Um, and, and you figure out how you can leverage that success to be more successful next time. Then you start to define yourself as someone who can control themselves with food and you develop a positive snowball when you do that. Most people will say, why did I do that to myself? What's wrong with me? But they don't realize that when they do that, they're directing their brain to collect evidence of failure and to build a failure identity. To um, Well, there's confirmation so, bias on both sides of every argument. Like I recently had a client uh, saying to me, well, diets don't work. And, you know, even to unpack a statement like that, because, you know, what are we talking about? Crash diets don't work. You know, we could get into actually what that statement means. But even taking the statement on its face value of diets don't work, he looks around them for examples of how diets don't work and looks to previous experience of his to show that diets don't work. But if he was to look left instead of looking right, there's plenty of examples of lean athletes, of athletes who have had massive transformative experience and diets have worked for them. So I always think there's two sides to the confirmation bias lens we try to Absolutely. view. Absolutely. Yes. And if you want to be a successful person, you cultivate evidence of success. And I love that where you're trying to like, I've had six cupcakes, but I could have had 15. How did I, and looking for the positive in that. Or, or, or I ate a whole pizza, but I didn't eat the box. Yeah. But how do we get out? So this is actually a, a quite a personal question for me because my dad suffers from obesity. He was a professional badminton player up through his 30s. And then he had an accident where he lost his toe. And, you know, it was in a generation where, you know, maybe there's a lot of mental health things that weren't diagnosed that should have been around an injury like that and the transition from pro sport into normal life. But since then, I've watched him on these cycles of, I'd almost call them, if we were economists, we'd call it a boom and bust cycle, but of massive restriction and then binge, massive restriction and binge. So he's always in one or the other phase, rarely yeah. in maintenance phase. Yeah, there's an old, um, I guess it's a nursery rhyme or a children's story about a little girl. And it says, 
when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was horrid. Yeah. And and there are a lot of people that fall into this feast and famine roller coaster, restricting and binge, restricting and binge, restricting and binge. And I tell them that I, I think there's an evolutionary mechanism in the brain, which says if we're in an environment where food is scarce and it's difficult to get calories and nutrition, which is what you tell your brain when you are massively restricting, then as soon as calories and nutrition are available, we'd better hoard it because you don't know when the next famine is going to come. This is the only reason I can think of why people find feeling too full to be a trigger to binge more. Because feeling too full would be a sign that they must have come upon the harvest or the hunt, right? Or the, or but the kill. is there not an emotional element to it where it's, it's taken back control? You know, we're in a life where very little is in our control for some people. They're, they feel spiraling out of control around deaths, around control of their own time, around autonomy in a lot of aspects, you know, politically, socially, economically. And this is their way of just grabbing back control. Yes, that's true. I, I can talk for about a half an hour about emotions. And <laughs> so just give me a second to finish the answer to your question before, if that's okay. Go for it. Um, I just wanted to say that the solution to the uh, feast and famine cycle, to massively restricting and then massively binging, is to flood your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit. I find that binge eaters do best. If you're out of control with your eating regularly, if you've been yo-yo dieting, going up and down, up and down, that it's really better if they have three regular meals for at least four to six months. After that, if you want to do intermittent fasting or other, you know, other types of restriction that really work for you, maybe you can do that. But for four to six months to really get all the junk out of your system and um, restore your hunger in full meters, which industry has done a great deal to break. We can talk about that afterwards if you want to. Like four to six months of flooding your body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit if you need to lose weight and step out of the feast and famine roller coaster. Okay. Uh, may I move to talking about emotional overeating? Yeah. Just before you move on to the emotional overeating, when you're, if somebody listening to the podcast right now identifies with what you just said, and they're trying to action three squares a day in a slight caloric deficit, would you recommend using calorie trackers, my fitness pal, or what way would you use? Would you quantify that? Um, yeah. So, I mean, let me just qualify that by saying that I'm I'm not a dietitian or a medical doctor. I'm a, I'm a PhD in psychology, which is how we started the whole conversation. <laughs> right? um, um, but yes, I, I tell people to use MyFitnessPal or Chronometer or have a consultation with a dietitian. Um, get get a really clear sense of what you should be eating um, day in and day out. And empirically, I find unless people are very obese, if they're losing more than a pound a week or so. I find that it's hard to stop binge eating. Um, they'll lose a bunch of weight really quickly, then they'll gain it back. That's that's just been my that's just been my experience. Um, okay, move to emotional eating. Yeah, let's talk about emotional. I'm curious about this one. Okay, so you talked about striving after a sense of control, and when life is out of hand, you can say, well. At least if I get fat, I can lose weight, and it's one thing I can control, right? Or, um, you know, I can eat a whole bunch and then not eat that much the next day, and this is something that's totally under my control, and I, I can't control whether my wife cheated on me. I can't control what happened with the boss. I can't control whether Vladimir Putin invades the Ukraine or sends nuclear bombs here. Um, but 
gosh darn it, I can control how many donuts I have and what my weight is. Yeah, and even um, controlling that momentary happiness because you could be living a life where you just don't have that much happiness. So even just getting that, you know, brief momentary hit of happiness from yeah. eating your favorite food. What what people don't understand about that though is that by consuming the hyperpalatable foods that cause dopamine surges which are above and beyond what evolution prepared us for you're actually wearing out your pleasure center you're wearing out its ability to produce the dopamine that you're seeking and you are um, down regulating the taste buds and the pleasure response to food so if you have a chocolate bar every day by the end of a month an apple is not going to taste anywhere near as sweet to you. You're not going to be able to taste this. You, you just won't. You're going to downregulate it. It's, it's like sleeping underneath the subway. The first first week you can't sleep at all. It just sounds so loud. But by the end of a month, you don't really even hear it. But is that, that is that downregulation true for athletes as well? Because I know a lot of listeners to the podcast will be going, "Oh shit," because we're in a sport where we're consuming you know, anything from 70 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour of exercise. And some days you'd be up to six hours of exercise. So you're consuming a lot of chocolate bars, a lot of processed sugar coming in. How does that down work, I, down regulation work there? You know, I, I don't know. I don't exactly know the answer to that. My, I, I was, I used to hike, um, I hike all 48, 4,000 foot mountains and, you know, I could consume 10,000 calories a day and not gain a pound when yeah. I, when I, when I did that. Um, I, my guess would be that you downregulate less when your body actually needs the carbohydrates that you're taking in. Um, but I don't know because it's still, it's still not a, um, it's still not a natural food. I wonder is, I wonder insulin's role in that uh, downregulation response because insulin wouldn't be present during exercise. <laughs> These are things we should look up and know the answer to in, in, our, in, our, in our profession. So at the, at the moment, I can only speculate. Uh, maybe one of your listeners has some expertise and can call in or write in and let us know. I'd be, I'd be really curious, but I'll, I'll call one of my dietitian friends and yeah, we'll, we'll loop back in, or I'm sure we'll have a, an expert coming on in the coming weeks, or we'll loop back in with one of your expert friends. Okay, so so there is that element of pathological control that can be there, and we do have to figure out how to let that go. However, um, I believe that the emotional element of overeating is overplayed in our society and that it's a mistake to believe that you have to solve your emotional problems first before you overeat, uh, before you can fix the overeating. Um, I think of the emotions kind of like a fire and you could have a roaring fire in a fireplace, in a well-contained fireplace, and that's not a liability, that's an asset, if the fireplace is strong enough, because there's, there's, you've severed the link between the roaring fire and the possibility of doing damage. And so that's what I work to do, is I work to sever the link between emotions and overeating. There are a couple of things that people don't realize about emotions and overeating. First of all, it's a two-way relationship. So yes, if you feel very anxious at night, the nervous system has difficulty conducting the emotions if it's if the digestive system is overrun with tasks. So if you overeat, you stuff yourself, you do feel this kind of comfort where you no longer feel as upset as you did before because your nervous system stops conducting the emotions. So food does have an anesthetic effect on 
the emotions. There is this kind of comforting effect. However, the things that people are overeating on are usually unnaturally concentrated, hyperpalatable foods, which are kind of like a drug, right? I'm not talking about when you're when you're cycling 20 miles or 50 miles, but you know when you're trying to get to bed, usually people are not overeating on broccoli; they're overeating on starches or something more filling or sweet or something, and that's kind of like a drug. So in addition to the desire for emotional comfort, there's also this desire to get high with food. And I think that there's a danger in focusing too much on the comfort because it it makes you feel sorry for yourself and it makes you want to comfort yourself more with food. But if you can remember... Yeah, we're, we're even programmed from watching, you know, sitcoms through the years to this certain types of foods that comfort us. You know, there's a whole genre of foods, comfort foods, you know, Hagen does ice cream, Ben and Jerry's. These are our traditional breakup foods for people. And cheesecake. When, when um, the Golden Girls, one of them had a problem, <laughs> they said, okay, I'll get the cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's this other element where we're actually trying to get a little high with food that people need to tell themselves so they avoid feeling sorry for themselves because that, that kind of tends to perpetuate the overeating. But there's one more very important thing, which is that if you feel anxious and you have a cheesecake or a muffin or you know something sugary and rewarding like that or even pretzels or you know something that that's really rewarding for you physically rewarding um it's actually true that that reward teaches your body to produce more anxiety um, you know we we can measure anxiety in terms of enhanced galvanic skin response and blood pressure and perspiration and respiration and and um and you can you can do this in animal studies also and there's a whole bunch of studies where for example they take baboons and whenever the baboons are exhibiting enhanced um you know heightened blood pressure or heightened galvanic skin response they give them a sugar reward and we find that while the sugar reward drops their physical signs of anxiety in the short term, in the, in the long run, that group of baboons winds up with consistently higher blood pressure and consistently higher galvanic skin response than the baboons that were not rewarded with sugar. So you're actually teaching your body through the process of operant conditioning to produce more of the very feeling you're trying to get away from. Yeah, it's um, like it, paying your credit card off with another credit card. It's just you're digging yourself deeper into this yes. hole. Yeah, yeah. It's so, there's, there's no awareness of that for people though. There, and this is why they so easily dig themselves deeper and deeper into these holes. The first twenty years of my trying to solve my overeating problem, I thought it was a deep psychological issue. I felt like I have a hole in my heart. If I can just fill that hole in my heart, then. I would have I wouldn't have to keep trying to fill the hole in my stomach. And I went to, you know, I went to every fantastic psychologist you could imagine in and around New York City. I come from a family of 17 therapists, so we knew everyone. Um, I took medication for a while. I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a while. I learned a lot about myself. It was a very soulful journey. I don't regret taking it, but it didn't help me to stop overeating. And there are a couple of reasons why. Um, one of them we already went over, which is that I don't believe that overeating is a disease. I think it's a case of having a healthy appetite that's corrupted by industry. And every time we're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache just laughing all the way to the bank. 
So that's an outside force that has nothing to do with, you know, my upbringing or being in a bad marriage or anything like that. The second reason is, and this is very interesting, that addiction in general and overeating in particular seems to be a misfiring of the sympathetic nervous system. That's the part of the nervous system that prepares us for emergencies. It's a very primitive part of the system in, in the reptilian brain. Um, and the reptilian brain doesn't really know love. It, it's, um, it looks at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I, or do I kill it? It's like a bad college drinking game. It's eat, mate, or kill. It's not really until the mammalian brain either evolved or God put it on top um, that to say, look, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on the people that you love and the, you know, the, your tribe and who you're trying to protect? And then the neocortex on top of that says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what about your longer term goals and the kind of person you're trying to be? And so, you know, I spent 20 years looking for love to fix my eating problem when really what I needed to do was learn how to get out of the reptilian brain, which knew nothing about love and was causing the problem, and back up into my higher brain that could define the kind of person that I really wanted to be. So I think I think we're really we've misconstrued what we've misconstrued the place of love and loving yourself and all of that in this um, in this whole mess. And I think it's a much more practical solution than it's made out to be. Not to say that it's not important to love yourself or deal with your emotional conflicts or anything like that, but I really see it as a as a task separate and apart from overcoming overeating. So if you were a listener of this podcast today and floating outside yourself and you're listening to this conversation, you're finding some of it interesting and you're identifying with this boom and bust cycle of restriction, striving for this ideal self always falling short of it and then going back into a period of binging again what would you do to break that boom bust cycle right now what would be your first tangible step the first tangible step would be to come up with one simple rule most people when they want to be good they set the bar way too high and they go into this restrictive period don't do that instead find one simple thing you could do that wouldn't be too burdensome that you would definitely feel was helping you make progress in the right direction. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There's this trucker, and this is maybe a far cry from your audience, but it's a good illustration. (laughs) (laughs) There's this trucker who was about 150 pounds overweight. And he said, I am I am not going to stop eating fast food. I got to eat at truck stops three times, three times a day. I'm going to keep doing that. But I'll tell you what, I won't go back for seconds. And that's all that he did. He, he stopped going back for seconds at first. That's all he did at first. And that took him from feeling out of control, like there was nothing that he could do about it, to beginning to lose a little weight, feeling a little less full and bloated all day, having a little more energy for the long hauls. And, you know, after after he had dropped like, 20, 30 pounds like that, he started adding a little, you know, another rule about the volume. And then he started adding greens to his life. And, um, but you start with one simple rule. When you make that simple rule, other rules could be, I will always put my fork down between bites, or I'll never eat in front of a TV again. I'm not going to be distracted again. Um, or I'll only have pretzels at major league baseball parks. Um, when, 
when you make this simple rule, you're going to find that there's a part of you that really wants to break it. And the trick is to listen for that part of you and not think that there's something wrong with you or that you have to break it because that part of you exists, but rather to say, good, this is my opportunity. This is when you make that rule, you're making it really clear when your reptilian brain gets active and wants you to break it. As soon as you feel like that, take a breath. As a matter of fact, if you can breathe in for a count of seven and breathe out for a count of 11, uh, which might be difficult to do while you're cycling, but if you can pause for a minute <laughs> and do that, um, you're going to be signaling your brain that there's no emergency and that it's okay to stop and think and pause and make a better decision. The reason those 7-11 breaths work like that is that if there was an emergency, you'd really be huffing and puffing and trying to get as much air as you could. You wouldn't have time to breathe out for longer than you breathed in. So take a couple of those 7-11 breaths and then write down what the thought is that suggests that you break a rule. For example, when I had a rule that said, I will only have chocolate on the weekends, on a Wednesday one day, I heard this little voice in my head say, you know what? You worked out hard enough hard enough today. I know it's Wednesday, but you're not going to gain any weight if you have one little chocolate bar. Go ahead and do it. And chocolate grows on a plant anyway, so it's really a vegetable. And it'll be just as easy to start tomorrow. So I say, OK, that's not me. That's my food monster squealing for pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let these monsters tell me what to do. And um, that's what wakes you up and gives you those extra microseconds to make a different choice if you want to. Write down specifically what it says, because writing is an upper brain activity and you know, binging is a lower brain activity, overeating is a lower brain activity. And then ask yourself, what's wrong with what this thing is saying? What's the, the monster usually wins by offering you a half truth with a bigger lie. So it's probably true that one chocolate bar wouldn't cause me to gain weight given my workout, but it's not going to be just as easy to start again tomorrow because the way that the brain works, the principle of neuroplasticity says, if I have a craving and I indulge that craving today, that craving is going to be stronger tomorrow. Um, if I have a thought and that thought leads to a sugar reward, that thought's going to be stronger tomorrow. So what's going to happen tomorrow if I indulge today is I'll be more likely to have the thought again. Gee, it would be just as easy to start the next day. Well, it's such and a I'm great place to start with this single rule because I'm such a big fan of habit stacking and we it's getting one good habit like people that listen to the podcast regularly they'll know my morning routine is quite elaborate involving you know cold immersion meditation journaling core work light therapy a bunch of stuff and if you were to look at that and go how the hell do you do that every morning but it just starts with getting up in the morning and literally getting out a pen and paper and journaling. And it, the rest of it's automatic because it started off one habit and that moved from a type one decision-making pathway to a type two decision-making pathway where it went from deliberate to automatic. Once that became automatic, the second habit got added in. That went from deliberate to automatic. And so over a period of time, I can see how starting out with one simple rule, you get quite an elaborate set of rules that are almost just automatic to carry out agreed agreed and that's that's what happens is that o over time you start to see yourself behaving differently and then it seems odd to consider yourself behaving otherwise and you're actually changing your identity you're changing your character which is what i mean of like how to how to think like a permanently thin person you you start you you stack these habits one by one with simple rules and um before you know it there's a different person in the mirror and you feel 
you feel much different. Glenn, you've some super cool resources to help people on that sort of journey to breaking that binge. Do you want to point them towards that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, everything's at the website, neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. And what you can do there is sign up for the reader bonuses and you'll get three things. One is a free copy of the book, which, by the way, has more reviews now than the Da Vinci Code. Um, <laughs> and and I, I had no idea this was going to take off the way that it did. And anyway, never binge again. Click the big red button. You get a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. If you want another format, you can do that. But there's you know, a charge for the physical and the audible. Um, you will get a set of recorded coaching sessions so that you understand what this is like in practice as opposed to being in theory. Um, you might be wondering, why does Anthony have this doctor on who has a pig inside of him? Um, and it sounds a little bit harsh, but it's actually a very compassionate, life-giving, um, powerful process, which takes people from feeling hopeless and overwhelmed about ever getting food under control to you know, feeling hopeful and enthusiastic in just one session. That's all free. And you'll get a set of food plan starter templates. We, we went to great trouble to create uh, hypothetical rules that you could use. Uh, regardless of your dietary philosophy. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a whole foods plant-based person, but we work with a lot of ketogenic people. We work with a lot of um, a lot of point counters and calorie counters, and it doesn't really matter what you do. As long as, long as you're flooding your body with nutrition and can do it at a slight deficit, it doesn't really matter what you do. We can teach you to stop binging. Um, and that's it. It's all neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. And I'm going to add all that into the show notes as well. I'll link up uh, Dr. Livingston's social channels and the links to his website where you can get all those free resources in the show notes. Dr. Livingston, thank you, thank you for joining me on the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Roadmen, thank you for listening to today's episode of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm asked all the time how listeners can support the podcast. Well, there's a number of ways you can support the podcast. As I mentioned at the outset, Patreon is an easy way to support it. But if you don't feel like subscribing on Patreon or you can't afford to subscribe on Patreon, a really easy way to support the podcast is simply sharing it with a friend. Take the episode link and sharing it into WhatsApp groups, into club Facebook groups, and just helping to spread the roadman word you can follow me and you can find me over on instagram our handle on instagram it's roadman.cycling or we have a new tiktok account where we're taking extracts from the podcast and posting them over there on roadman cycling podcast is the handle there really for all things roadman cycling the mission control is our main website which is newly launched and that's on roadmancycling.com you can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. They make such a huge difference. Or if you're not on Apple, you can leave the review anywhere where you listen to the podcast. Roadmen, have a great day and ride safe.